Parshas Vayeshev, the unexpected swirl of divine redemption. Namely, how the seeming last straw of defeat can in fact be the first spark of of deliverance. Let me explain what I mean. We think of it as a thing of fairy tales. This epic change, this dramatic segue from suffering to salvation, that the hero or heroine of the story is on the brink of disaster, and then suddenly salvation happens. But it's not only the thing of fairy tales. For the Maimon Basham, for the one who believes in Hashem, we know that is the story of Klal Yisrael of the Jewish people. That this is what we have our deepest hopes staked on. That from the very pit, bowels of our goals, from the deepest place of despair, will eventually come the greatest of Gaulas. And this, we will see, is the theme of our Parsha. This unexpected swirl of divine redemption, how what's seemingly the last straw of defeat can in fact be the first spark of deliverance. To begin, our Parsha is really the story of Yosef's distress, how event after event seems to render his dreams, literally his dreams, the dreams he had of leadership and grandeur, become ever more elusive as his suffering increases. First, he is kidnapped by his brothers, and eventually sold as a slave to Mitzrayim. So certainly his future as a Jewish leader does not look too promising. And then all the more so, he is framed, he is falsely accused by the wife of Potiphar of horrible misdemeanors and thrown into prison. So all the more so his hopes of grandeur have seemingly been rendered impotent. And then the parasha ends, seemingly with a flicker of hope. Yosef earned some friends. You recall at the end of the parasha how in prison he met the Saramashkim, the Saraofim, the royal butler, the royal baker, and he 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 won a he won a place of gratitude in their heart, certainly in the heart of the royal butler Saramashkim, when he predicted a positive future for for the Saramashkim. But the parasha ends. No, the Sarhamashkim forgot about Yosef. Doesn't do anything for Yosef. And it is such a depressing pasuk at the end of the parsha. Vlozacher Sarhamashkim as Yosef Ayishkechayu. The Sarhamashkim did not remember Yosef. Final word of the of the parsha of Ayishkechayu, he forgot him. And it's a powerful last word. The last word of a tale, the last word of a chapter is powerful. The last word of the Yosef saga in our parish is Yosef is forgotten. Yosef is languishing in prison forgotten. More than simply a statement of fact, this is the final crescendo note of our parsha. 
Parshas Vayeshev's analysis of the Yosef story is Yosef is forlorn. Despair after despair, his dreams of grandeur seem as far off as possible. And we all know the end of the story. We know what's going to happen. We know salvation is right around the corner next Parsha. And it is therefore so anticlimactic that our Parsha drops the curtain with Vayishkechei Yosef is forgotten. But of course that is exactly the intent of our Parsha. Our Parsha is coming to portray a depth of despair. And to hint to you and I who know the end of the story, think what's going on here. How somehow a Yeshua is going to crop up so unbelievably when on the surface, when in front of Yosef here in real time, things couldn't be worse. And as with every parsha, when we study it deeply and listen, listen to its echoes, to its reverberations, we could trace textual patterns which bring out this point, which kind of create a pulse for us. This is a story of seeming despair, seeming despair, seeming despair at its worst. For example, there is a word which keeps appearing through our parishman regard to Yosef. And that is the word bar, the word pit. For starters, when Yosef's brothers first eye him and plan on abducting him, they say, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of the pits. Let's throw his dead corpse, his corpse into a pit. And then even when they relent and they don't, and they don't actually kill him, they in fact throw him into the pit. This is the pit with the snakes and the scorpions. And what's interesting is, aside from these two pits in the beginning of the parasha, i.e. the pit they plan to throw a dead Yosef in, and then the pit that in fact they throw a live Yosef in, a pit re- the term bar pit reappears unexpectedly at the end of the parasha. When it, it says that Yosef, when he was convicted on trumped up charges by the wife of Potiphar, he was thrown into the jail, what's called Beis Hasar. But yet when Yosef himself describes his jail, when he is talking to the royal butler, the Sar Hamashkin, he says, look what's happened. Kisamoosi Babar. They've thrown me into a pit here. It's a pit dungeon. Now, various Mepharshim explain that that jail was likely subterranean, below the ground. But it is interesting nonetheless that Yosef calls his jail a bar a pit, unlike the Torah's initial description of simply base has sour jail. One senses there is more than a matter-of-fact depiction in Yosef using the word bar. That actually, he's describing his situation presently in jail as a pit. In terms of everything a pit conveys, in the pits, the depth of despair, and he is thereby, by extension, echoing back to the previous boros, the previous pit in his pits in his story. It's been pits from day one. My brothers sought to th- kill me and throw me into a pit. 
In fact, they do throw me into a pit with snakes and scorpions, and here I am now again in a bar. This overarching expression of the story, it's really pits. That's the pulse of the story here. Couldn't be worse. But of course, we read this parsha in hindsight with the 2020 vision perspective, knowing it's so clear, not only is Yosef going to survive these travails, but these seeming travails will actually be the path for Yosef's glory. It is only because he was sold down to Mitzrayim and then trumped up on charges and thrown into prison and that he meets the royal butler and that the royal butler only meant, remembers him two years later when it's an opportune time and Paro is in need of help and therefore re- receptive to Yosef. It is because of all these things, actually, that all Yosef's dreams were fulfilled. The original dreams are fulfilled not despite these challenges of our parsha, but due to the challenges in our parsha. Hashem has funny ways as only Hashem can. And seeing Parshas Vayesha from this perspective is particularly intriguing when we appreciate that this is the opening story of Gullus. Yosef is entering Mitzrayim, a personal Gullus, which is by extension ushering in the Gullus of the Jewish people. We will all end up in Mitzrayim, that first Gullus due to Yosef. And not only is Yosef's experience the beginning of the Jewish people's Gaulus in Mitzrayim, but it's the foreshadowing of the Jewish people's in Gaulus. Let's make a simple observation. The Jewish people suffer the very same fate as Yosef. On a national level, we will all be what? Avadim in Mitzrayim, slaves in Mitzrayim, as he was sold as a slave. Simple observation. It is quite clear that he is foreshadowing the destiny of the people, and that just as he is enslaved, but then redeemed, then in a rags-to-riches story rises to a position of greatness, we too will leave Berachush Gadol, wealthy with a royal bearings. And I suggest this correlation that the story of Yosef, the Gullus Gula story of Yosef is really the foreshadowing of the people story, is captured in the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, which says, Berach Hashanah, Batla Avoda, Yatza Yosef mi Hasurim, it was on the first day of Tishri Rosh Hashanah that Yosef left prison, and it was on that same day that the Jewish people's labor ended in Mitzrayim. The same day of the calendar, Yosef was unshackled from his chains, and the Jewish people were unshackled from their chains. Not simply an incidental calendar correlation, but I think this Gemara is actually wrapping up our observation here, capturing our observation here. Yosef is play in a play-by-play fashion foreshadowing the destiny of the people. And therefore, when we read Parshas Vayeshev the way we have, as a story of such engulfing despair, seeming no way out, but yet we realize the unforeseen swirl of divine redemption. It's going to be through all of these Saras Yosef will rise. We, by extension, expand that to the Jewish people to all of our personal goals and all of our personal travails, all of our personal galusin, patterned after Yosef's. 
that we too, when we struggle in life, and it seems like there's no way forward, and we want to release our grip, we want to give up, realize it is from this depth of despair that Yeshua somehow, some way emerges. And sometimes we could trace it, sometimes we merit to see those epic segues in our lives and to trace it. Sometimes it will be in a future state of consciousness, Olam Haba, the future that we will see it. But somehow, some way, that is how Hashem works, and that's a very powerful realization, which makes this parsha the parsha, the model story of Gaulus, Yosef and Gaulus, foreshadowing the Jewish people in Gaulus, so so compelling. And this understanding that we are supposed to study Parshas Vayeshev. The story of Yosef in the pits, quite literally, think of our bar pattern, textual pattern in the Parsha. That we are supposed to see it as from the pits, somehow redemption emerges. Well, that is underscored by the continuation of a textual pattern which we will trace. And that is a next week's Parsha. When finally, the Saramashkim, the royal butler, does serve as a liaison and mention Yosef to Paro when Paro's in need of a wise man to interpret his dreams. So the Pasuk says, Vayikras Yosef He called Yosef and Yosef was brought up rapidly from the pit. Notice, it does not say min base hasawar from the jail. It does not use that initial depiction of jail. But it uses the expression pit. Yosef here, when he is leaving, when he's leaving, and he's now gonna don respectable clothing and stand in front of Paro and ultimately become the viceroy, it says he's running out of the pits. Why does the Torah use the word bar here rather than the initial base Hasar jail? Well, now it's so clear. It is to conclude our textual pattern. Yosef is leaving the pit, not only the prison pit but all the bar associations from the very beginning of his story. The pit in which his brothers sought to kill him and throw his corpse, the pit in which they actually did throw him to a bunch of live venomous snakes and scorpions, all of those pits. He's rapidly running out of all of those pits, leaving it behind him. It's becoming so clear to him from that deepest bowel, from the deepest pits of pits, the entire pendulum swings to a hopeful place. Living life this way, tracing these pendulum swings from Gullus to Gaula, how the seeds of salvation are sown amidst the suffering. One has to just laugh Laugh at the human condition, laugh at human frailty, that we are so quick to write ourselves off. We are so quick to, us, to lose hope when, in fact, not only is redemption right around the corner, but redemption will somehow spring due to the perceived troubles. And this is this sentiment. This sentiment of realizing just how short-sighted man is 
in man's judgment of hopelessness is underscored by yet another splendid textual parallelism in our parsha, or pattern in our parsha. And that's what I call a double entendre pattern, where the Torah uses an expression which carries two, carries a dual meaning, both of which complement each other. Let's have a look. When the brothers abduct Yosef and cast him into the pit, so they say like, they say like this, initially actually seeking to kill. Let's kill him. Let's throw him into the one of the pits. And we're just going to write this one off to Yaakov and say a wild animal ate him. And then we will see what will become of his dreams. Now there is no question that the most surface la- la- layer of pshat reading of this verse is the brothers are ending off with a sarcastic, cynical statement. And then we will see what will happen to his dream. dreams. Dreams. Yeah, when we, when, when we kill him off and say that he's been re- eaten by a wild animal, then we will see what will become of his dreams. Yeah, right. He will be the sovereign leader of Israel. But yet Rashi, citing Chazal, reads this statement differently. Not as a statement of the Shvatim, but actually as a statement on Hashem's part. Hashem says, oh yeah? That's what you think? You think you're going to kill him off and forestall my divine plan and forestall Yosef's glory? We are going to see what's going to happen to his dreams. So which one is it? Who's talking here? Who is uttering this statement? We will see what will happen to his dreams. Is it the brothers speaking or Hashem speaking? Well, both. Why does the Torah splice in both narrators into the same figure of speech? Well, the answer is that is the master design of the divine author here. Hashem is seeking to portray that amidst human skepticism, amidst the brother's statement, yeah, right, we will see what will happen to his dream, is the divine affirmation, yes, indeed, you will see. The two must be fused together, the human cynicism and the divine Affirmation, redemptive affirmation. The two must be fused together. Because only from the divine picture, only from Hashem's perspective, is indeed redemption surfacing from the most unexpected of places, from the most unexpected of situations when human, humans have written it all off. Expanding our study of the parsha and studying it as a whole, as a cohesive unit, we find other stories and narratives in our parsha which point to this theme, the unexpected swirl of divine redemption, how the last straw of defeat, in fact, becomes the first spark of deliverance. Because inlaid in our parasha, inlaid within the story of Yosef, is the story of Yehuda and the drama of Yehuda's family. It says, 
Vayihibeisachi, it was at that time, Vayered Yehuda Meyesechav. Yehuda's descended from his brothers. Yehuda went down. Rashi explained Yehuda was rejected by his brothers. The brothers had some regrets having sold Yosef, and they pointed fingers at Yehuda. So Yehuda becomes the reject now. Now, there's something compelling here in that previously Yosef was the one abandoned by his brothers, and now Yehuda's the reject. There seems to be a parallel track in development here. Especially compelling when you note, as Chazal notes, that this expression, Vayer Yehuda, Yehuda went down, mirrors the statement that says regarding Yosef in the next narrative, the Yosef Hurad Mitzrayim, Yosef descended down to Mitzrayim. Yerida, Yerida, both Yosef and Yehuda are going down, whether going down to Egypt in Yosef's case, you're going down in demotion from a position of leadership in the Yehuda story. The point is, both are going down, descending, both are abandoned in a sense by their brothers. And of course, there are many other parallelisms between these two juxtaposed stories, Yosef and Yehuda, including, again, what Chazal note that in both cases, there was a struggle with a woman. There was a struggle with you might say a zona, a harlot of sorts. Of course, Yosef is preyed upon by Ishes Potiphar. Yehuda is preyed upon by Tamar. Now, there are many aspects and many dimensions of symbolism and meaning to be teased out from this pattern of parallel tracks between Yosef and Yehuda. But I would suggest on one level, the Torah is placing Yehuda and Yosef side by side as the two kings of the Jewish people. Both in that period and that generation, Yosef and Yehuda were the two leaders we know. And for all time, we have the Malchus of Yehuda, the Malchus of Yosef, whether the Malchus Yehuda, the Davidic dynasty on one hand, and the kingdom of the Esar Sashvatim, the ten tribes under Yosef on the other, during the period of Ba'is Rishon, the first base of Mekdash. Or whether at the end of days we have Mashiach ben Yosef and a Mashiach, of Mashiach ben David and a Mashiach ben Yosef. We have Messiah from both Yosef and Yehuda, respectively. These are the two kings. These are the two figures of Geula. What the Torah wants us to note here is how, how in our parsha both respective figures of Geula are suffering. As figures of Geula, their path cannot be snagless, but quite the contrary. Filled with snags, filled with struggle, both are abandoned, descending, and both of their fortunes seem so unlikely here. Yehuda, no less than Yosef. It's the same phenomenon. And yet, when Yehuda seems to be so forlorn and abandoned, abandoned by his brothers, committing moral failure when he's lured here by Tamar, disguises a harlot as a zona. We know that it is not despite that circumstance, those circumstances, but due to those circumstances that his great ka'ula has happened, happens. It is in that exile from his brothers, and it is in that liaison with Tamar that he is actually fathering parrots, the continuation of his malchus, the ancestry of the Davidic dynasty that it is so clear once again in the, in the Yehuda story. His redemption is not despite his suffering, but due to his supposed suffering. And this is borne out further 
born, born out further quite literally in the birth of this son Yehuda, born from the relationship between Yehuda and Tamar. Because the Chumash describes that Tamar is giving birth to twins. And the oldest, Peretz, seems to be leaving first. But then he's beaten back. The other brother, Zarach, puts out his hand first. It seems like the older son, Peretz, has lost his, has lost the race. But then, in some unexpected display of strength and vigor, Peretz pulls his way out first. And the midwife is so impressed. She says, Ma parats dalacha parats. How amazing how you pulled out, you pulled out from this from the loser spot to the winner's spot, and therefore the child was called parats, breaking out of boundaries. And this might seem like a petty story. Well, why does it matter the circumstances from birth that there was a race of sorts who would leave the womb first? And that parrots, this child who will father the Yehudist Davidic dynasty, is initially seems to fall back to the loser position, but then breaks forth and is hence called parrots. But we're beginning to appreciate, in line with the larger Yehuda narrative and in the larger narrative of the Parsha, which is bringing out how Geula and the Goel persona, the Redeemer persona, must be one who rises from the loser position. One who triumphs skepticism. That when it seems like Peretz has lost the race, he beats back and wins. That's what makes him a goal. That is what gives him his very name as Peretz, the one who breaks through boundaries. Peretz literally means to break through seemingly... impenetrable barriers. That is what makes a Redeemer. That is what makes a Yehuda. That is what makes a Malchus based of it. And you will find many statements and stories about Yehuda and his progeny which bring out this idea. Always beating back from a position of seeming defeat. For example, we find later Centuries into the future after the story. Chizkiyahu HaMelech, one of the kings of Israel named Chizkiyahu, when he's on his deathbed. And Yeshaya the Navi tells him, you're done for. And Chizkiyahu tells him, I refuse to give up, deathbed notwithstanding. He says in the Gemara, Kach in the Gemara records, Kach mikublani mi beis aviyaba. This is my tradition from David, my ancestor. Afilu cherav chadam nachas at savar shaladam. Even if there's a sharp sword against one's neck, al yimnaat minarachamim. Do not stop praying for mercy. This inspiring tradition. A person prays for mercy. A Jew never loses hope, even with the sharp, even with the sharp blade of the knife against his neck is a tradition uttered by particularly who? It, tra- it is a statement of David Hamel transmitted to subsequent kings of Israel. That is no coincidence. This is the Yehuda story. This is the Parshas Vayeshev story. 
the families of the Redeemer, be they Yosef, be they Yehuda, become Redeemers. What makes their what makes them redemptive figures is their own formative experiences of beating back against defeat, dispelling human skepticism, who've already written them off as losers. That's what makes them compelling figures in redemption. That likewise they will take the Jewish people from the very bowels of despair and lead them to grandeur and glory in Yeshua. So sing Parshas Vayeshev as a whole this way. The Yosef story then inlaid with the Yehuda story as really a multidimensional story of the unexpected swirl of divine redemption. This is a story of Geula here. This is how Geula happens, whether the Geula of Yosef, whether the Geula of Yehuda, whether Yosef's Geula from Mitzrayim, or whether Yehuda's Geula, ultimately the Geula at the end of days. And the way we have woven together tonight the Yosef and Yehuda stories in our parasha is more than simply two stories that occurred within a given time frame, but actually as a master stroke, a master stroke of the divine puppeteer here, the divine screenwriter here, the one who's writing out the story in real life. Two stories of Yeshua, which are coming together in a complementary way. Dovetails very nicely with a well-known Medrash in our parsha, commenting on this juxtaposition between the Yosef and the Yehuda stories. It says like this: "Ki anochi hamachshavus." I know true thoughts, says the the, pos- the Medrash quotes a pasuk. Hashem says, "I am the one who really knows what's going on," in a way which people do not, because what is going on in Parshas Vayeshev? The brothers are busy selling Yosef. So they definitely are of the impression Yosef is done for. The Yosef Yosef's mourning the situation. He's donned in sackcloth and he's fasting. Reuven has his own skeletons in the closet to deal with. He's mourning too. Reuven messed up badly, of course, if you recall in last week's parsha in terms of how he dealt with his father's private life. The Yaakov Hayasek Basaka Yaakov was mourning too. Yaakov just lost Yosef. The Yehuda, uh, so amidst all of this, the whole family here is in despair. The Yehuda Hayasek Likha and Yehuda goes and marries a woman. Yehuda's beginning to birth children here. And Yehuda thinks he's just building his own family. But unbeknownst to him, Hashem is busy enabling the birth of Mashiach in terms of the drama that happens here in the Yehuda story. So the Medrash is portraying, Hashem says, only I know what's going on. In the Vayeshev story, everyone sees a gullus happening here. Yosef's a gullus. Yosef's mourning. Yaakov's mourning. And even Yehuda doesn't quite get what's going on. He thinks he's just marrying a woman. But unbeknownst to him, from, from all of this, 
despair and the like, Hashem is ensuring the birth of the Mashiach. Well, this medrash, I believe, is not an isolated individual commentary to our parasha, but it's capturing the epic message of the parasha as a whole, and really our entire study tonight, how the Yosef and the Yehuda stories are coming together. And there's another dimension, really, to this drama. Another dimension to this palpable tension of seeming despair and hopelessness from which Hashem is somehow ensuring salvation. And that is yet another dimension to the Yehuda story inlaid within the Yosef story. And here I am referring to the Yibam phenomenon, the Leverett marriage phenomenon. Let me explain. We know there's a mitzvah called Yibam, that if a person, Khalila dies childless, then his brother is enjoined to marry the widow. Now, before Matan Torah, this was oftentimes practiced by other relatives too, not only a brother. And therefore, in our parsha, Yehuda eventually serves this role vis-a-vis his daughter in Tamar. In other words, his son Er has died, and when his son Onan, as brother, refuses to marry the deceased, the deceased wife, and then dies himself, well, Tamar says, the widow says, I have to have Yehuda, my father-in-law, perform this yibam here. Have a relationship with me and thereby resurrect the memory of the deceased by producing a child in memory, continuing the name of the deceased Yehuda's sons, her husband. And she goes to great lengths to do this. She dupes Yehuda. She disguises herself as a zone, as a harlot, and lures him. So apparently, it is so important, so compelling that this Yibam happened here. She's ready to go to such lengths, such scandalous lengths to ensure it happens. And it must be significant that Malchus based David, the Mashiach, the story of the Redeemer, occurs specifically through Yibam. And when we pull out our magnifying glass and look for further clues, it's amazing to note Yibam cropping up all over the place again and again in this story of Malchus based David. And we will see what this has to do with the larger thesis we've been developing in the parasha. Because not only do we have this Yibam here, this leverant relationship between Yehuda and Tamar, but again, years in the future, Yehuda's descendant, Boaz, engages in a Yibam, engages in such a relationship with Rus, from which the Mashiach is born. The fathers of David are born.
And by the same token, when we study another root of this family tree of Malchus based David, and we study the story of Rus HaMoaviyah, the origins of Rus, the origins of the nations of, of Moab, which was, of course, from the relationship between Lod and his daughters. You appreciate that that is functionally a Yibam story too. Lot's daughters have relations with him. Why are they having relations with him? It's incest. Why are they engaged in this incest? Because after Stoma has been destroyed, they believe catastrophe has struck the world. They believe there's death here. So to resuscitate the lost mankind, we must engage even in incest. The, the, the Yibam dynamic is quite clear. And you will appreciate how all these three stories, Yehuda and Tamar are in our parsha. Number one. Number two, Rus with Boaz. And number three, Lot's daughters. They're so uncannily similar. Not only incest in the interest of a greater good, of searing life, bringing life amidst death. But in all of these stories, you'll, we, you will find it's the woman who initiates the relationship very, very uncannily similarities, and all within the birth of the same, the, the birth of the same, the conception of the same Davidic dynasty. There is yet a fourth example of Yibam, which is linked, at least conceptually, to the Mashiach, and that is Yibam in principle, minus the incest, minus the scandal. What am I referring to? What is the first time Yibam happens in Chumash? And I don't, again, I don't mean the incest per se. I mean, when is the first time that you have this notion of death and then a child born to replace the deceased, which is functionally what Yibam's coming to accomplish? You have it right in the beginning of Chumash in Parshas Precious. The first death in the Chumash is the death of Havel. He was killed by Cain. And then Adam and Chava have another child who they call Shase. And they call him Shays, Kishasli Elikim Zarachar Tachas Hevel. Hashem has created and has placed another child in place of Hevel. Shays serves as the replacement for the deceased Hevel, so I see Shays' birth, the notion of Yakum al Shem Hames, replacing the deceased. It's a conceptual yibam. Why is that significant to our study? Because if you look in the Medrash Rabbin, Bracious on that Pasuk, the birth of Shays, Shasli Zarachim Tachas Hevel, says the Medrash, Histakal al Mashiach. Hashem was looking out at the Mashiach. Shays' birth is really foreshadowing the birth of the Mashiach. Well, now we have a conceptual framework to fit this Medrash into. Yibam is inextricably linked to the Mashiach in so many ways. In in all these examples, Yehuda in our parsha, Boaz and Rus, Benos Lot, the daughters of Lot, and Midrashically, the birth of Shays. Again, None of these links in our chain here are explicitly connected by the Torah, but when we trace it, when we stud, when we connect the dots here, it is so clear. It's all over the place. Written larger than life all over Malchus based of it is the Yibam connection. And the question is why? Of what thematic significance is that? What is the meaning? How does Yibam symbolize what Malchus based of it is all about? And it seems to me the explanation is as follows. And this will 
underscore the message of our entire presentation tonight. The idea of Yibam is a response to hopelessness, meaning a man has died. And generally when a person dies, they leave behind progeny, which not only keeps their name and their memory alive, but spiritually speaking, it gives their neshama continued vitality, continued life, as they, their neshama continues to have a ripple effect, continue to inspire the progeny they've left behind. When a person dies without children, it seems like there's no future, no hope here. I always use the example just to bring out this morbidness. You remember back in the day, before we lived in a PC-obsessed world, remember there used to be those signs on a street which wasn't a through street, Dead end, it would say. I don't see those dead end signs anymore. Now it seems to say no outlet on all the signs. In fact, I love to joke amongst Baltimoreans, my favorite dead end change to no outlet sign is which intersection, Baltimoreans? The intersection of Reisterstown and Mount Wilson Lane. It used to say dead end on that, that sign there. They changed that sign to no outlet. You know why? Because what's right there at the intersection? Saul Levinson's funeral home. I have no doubt that is why they changed that dead end sign. Yeah, that even when people are in the funeral home, you can't escape death. Nobody wants to think of dead end. Right? Because that's just very, very off-putting an understatement. Deep down, we believe it can't be dead end. But when a person dies without children, the dead end stigma in all of its wanton morbidity looms large. There is no hope. So it seems. Comes along the mitzvah of Yibam. Hashem says, by hook or by crook, I am going to ensure there's no dead end here. From a mist despair. I'm going to ensure somehow, in the most unexpected of ways, utilizing a a relationship which otherwise would be prohibited, incest. I'm going to ensure here the memory of the deceased will be kept alive to underscore the truth that there is there can never be hopelessness. There can never be dead end. This is why Malchus based up in the story of the Mashiach must emerge again and again through Yibam. Yibam is the iconic mitzvah of, of, of the family of the Redeemer. It's the iconic mitzvah of Mashiach. It brings out when it seems like there's no hope, when a Jewish people will be in the very depth of gulfs. Somehow, someway, it's going to happen. The unexpected swirl of divine redemption we've been discussing the whole night, we've been developing throughout our parsha. The very persona of the Redeemer, Malchus, based off Mashiach, seared through Yibam. This is a persona seared by resilience and overcoming struggle and overcoming obstacles, which is what makes the Mashiach and Yehuda's entire family a compelling redeemer, a compelling redeemer figure. 
Now, those who listen to my podcast from the beginning of the week will recall that we took this Yibam idea further and we traced it back to the Yosef story too. And the fact that Yosef's brother sold him for a pair of shoes, which is a symbolic Yibam object. And we developed then what the shoe and the foot represents in the Yibam story and in the Yosef Yehuda story, the message being the same, that while there is no literal Yibam in the Yosef story, conceptually it's the same idea in our Parsha. It's the overcoming obstacles. It's the finding a path to hopefulness amidst hopelessness. And this is what our parish is all about. And I think now we can kind of tie the satin ribbon around our parish, bringing it together as a whole. It's theme, the unexpected swirl of divine redemption. How the last the straw of defeat is in fact the first spark of deliverance. So let's appreciate the whole orientation, the whole direction of our parasha from its opening pusk. The parasha begins... Vayeshev Yaakov Be'aretz Mugariyav Yaakov settles in Eretz Yisrael Eila told us Yaakov Yosef But then the Yosef strife breaks out And of course the simplest read is Yaakov, the, the individual Settles in Eretz Yisrael comes, Resettles in Eretz Yisrael But then problems, problems Surface again Yosef sold into slavery Rashi, however Adopts a different read Embraces a different read Rashi reads, Vayeshev Yaakov does not simply mean Yaakov the person, but Yaakov the nation. Vayeshev Yaakov is actually a reference, according to Rashi, to the Jewish people settling in Eretz Yisrael years in the future, after Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, when Yeshua leads us into the land, and we finally settle down, Vayeshev Yaakov, Eretz Mgoriavov. The Jewish people settle in the land of Israel, and the Chumash is saying, you know how that happens. The next passage continues, Ela told us Yaakov Yosef. Yosef was sold as a slave. He ends up in Mitzrayim. The people end up in Mitzrayim. According to Rashi's read, the Parsha is doing something fascinating here. The Parsha is kind of releasing its grip on the Beresha story, which it has been narrating till now, and actually peering into the future by Yeshav Yaakov, the Jewish people, the nation, in the days of Yeshua settled in the land of Israel, and charting for us, well, that all happens due to the sale of Yosef and the Gullus Mitzrayim, which follows. Seen this way, what the Chumash is really focused on, what the parish is really concerned with is, Geula in the future, Vayeshev Yaakov, when we finally settle down. You know how that happens? That actually, believe it or not, happens through a Mechiras Yosef, through a Gauls Mitzrayim. These worst of travails are actually the path to triumph. Vayeshev Yaakov, the Jewish people settling down. Each of us as individuals realizing our dreams. That always happens through 
a cycle of setbacks, personal and national. Yosef, Hayabem, Shvas, Rishon, and here the going gets rough. He will go down to Mitzrayim, the Jewish people, but somehow we will thereby step back upon the land. Well, from that opening passage, from that thematic opening paragraph, the parsha unfolds magnificently the way we have traced it, both the bigger, the larger Yosef story and the Yehuda story inlaid therein, how the birth of Geula is always through the travails. Salvation not despite suffering, but due to suffering. So taking tonight's shear, taking the cohesive patterns which we have traced and how they come together in a unified parsha, it's obvious how we each personalize this. The vicissitudes of life, each of our personal setbacks, which include moral setbacks, and the amuna, the realization that our dreams will materialize in this place of struggle, in this place of travail. So hold on tight. We know our sources tell us that at the end of days, Olam Haba, future states of consciousness that will become apparent, that everything we wrote off as Ra was really Tov. But may it be the will of Hashem, just as in the story in our parsha that we see in our lifetime, we see the curve all of us. How worthwhile it was to hold on tight and maintain Amuna. How all of the struggles are in fact part of that unexpected swirl of divine redemption. Thank you very much.